Good morning. Uh, thank you all for coming today. I know you had to, but um, we're still glad you're here. Um, you are in a, a series about relationships, and those are always fun things to talk about, sometimes awkward, depending on what we're talking about. Um, but I was reading a book that essentially has nothing to do with relationships, except it had some interesting insights. And so I thought I'd mention it. It's written by a French psychologist who worked with autistic children. And in his work with autistic children, essentially what he had to do is he had to break the code of what really worked with the communication with these autistic kids. And at one point he was giving a conference and one of the, the head marketers for Jeep came to him and said, listen, have you ever worked with products and breaking kind of the culture code, as you say, um, about products to see if we can get them into people's psyche? And he said, no, I've never done that. And he said, we will give you a lot of money to do that. Would you like to do that? And he said, yes, which many of us would. And so um, the marketer from Jeep, at this point, the Wrangler was having a little bit of an issue in the market. Nobody was purchasing a Wrangler. We see them all the time now, but Jeep in, at this point had changed some things about the headlights. They were rectangular, they were no longer round, and they had become less desirable. And they'd done lots of focus groups on the Jeep Wrangler, and everyone was saying, listen, it's too small. We want something different than what Jeep is giving us at this point with the Wrangler. And so... As he began to study it and he began to work through the culture code for Wrangler, he began to find some very interesting things. And at the end, he goes back to Jeep and he says, would you like to know the word, the culture code for Wrangler in the United States? And they said, yes, we're very interested. What is it? And he said, it is the word horse. So that is how you need to market this thing. And they looked at him and they said, thank you very much. No. And they fired him. And he went back to them and he said, just one thing, just change one thing on the Jeep. Make those headlights that are rectangular, make them round. And so they did a little research, realized it was cheaper to actually make them round than rectangular, and they said, okay, we'll do that. And they shifted their marketing campaign just a little bit, and the sales shot up when it came to the Jeep Wrangler. Because there's a culture code for everything. We associate, we imprint certain things with certain things. And for U.S. America, to hear the word Wrangler and to see a Jeep Wrangler was a connection with a horse that runs free in the Wild West. And if you notice, that is still how they market the Wrangler. You never see a Wrangler going around a city, stopping through a drive through with its big tires. That's not how you see it. It's always on a trail somewhere. And people who buy Wranglers buy them so they can be out on the trails and then they never go. But the idea that they can, that's all you need. And so they said, well, you know what? This is phenomenal. Let's go to Europe and let's market it the same way. And, 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 and this psychologist said, well, you can't do that because it, the culture code in Europe is different for a Wrangler than it is in the U.S. America. And they said, oh, okay, well, what is it? And they said, well, in France, it means liberation. Because during World War II, when the Americans rolled up in their Jeep Wranglers, it meant liberation from the Nazis. And they said, great, we'll do that and we'll do it all throughout Europe. And they said, well, you can't do that. Because in Germany, it means something else. And they said, well, what does it mean in Germany? And said, in Germany, the Wrangler means hope. Because they, too, were under a Nazi regime. And when the, when the Americans rolled in in their Wranglers, for them, it was hope that life will get better now. And it's fascinating to hear the culture code for different things. Um, I wrote a few of them down. 
It's interesting that the American culture code for love is false expectation. That's sad, isn't it? It is, because what happens is we, we have weird expectations about what, lo what love is supposed to be. We learn about it when we're young, and we think it's supposed to be this amazing thing, and then uh, we're let down. Because when you're 12, chances are the person you're dating is not the person you're going to end up with, right? And why is it we fall so deeply in love when we're 12 years old? We love everything so much. That first love, that puppy love, oh, we're so happy, we're so in love. Oh. And then it's horrible. My daughter is 10, and she's moving into these, into these things. And there's one boy that if we say his name, she gets red. <laughs> and I just happened to say it in passing. I was like, oh, you talked to so-and-so lately? And she's like, <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> I haven't seen that before. You're a 10-year-old. Normally, it's, ah, boys, blah, blah, blah. And I said this guy's name, and I'm not going to say it now. Um, I said his name, and she got red and went, <laughs> And as a father, that is the worst sound on the planet. <laughs> like, what? You, make, you can't make that noise. That means you know they're out there. There are boys and they're different. Because I've been doing nothing but making her hang out with her brothers who she thinks are smelly and dirty and disgusting, which they are. <laughs> because that's what boys are. And they stay that way, even into teenage years. But she now has seen one, at least, and... And eventually, that boy will let her down. And then love will mean false expectation. She'll be just like the rest of us, tainted and cynical. <laughs> we, <laughs> Amen. Let's, let's. <laughs> what a horrible place to end. Um, so we'll, we'll press on. The culture code for love in America is... False expectation. The culture code for love in France, food. <laughs> food. That's the culture code. The culture code for sex in France, romance. Oh, the French. <laughs> the culture code for sex in America is violence. And that's not funny. We equate sex, the culture code, according to this particular researcher, the culture code that we have for sex is violence in America. And I want you to think, and I'm not going to say them, but think about the words we use for getting together with someone in a sexual nature. Just go through those in your head. The majority of them are violent. And we've said those things since we were little kids, because that's what we've heard. So begin to think about this now. In the U.S. America, the culture code for love is false expectation, and the culture code for, for sex is violence, and we are not painting a very good picture of what our relationships are going to be according to our culture, are we? And we see these things uh, coming up again and again. And America is fascinated with violence in a way that many other countries are not. And, and for some reason, in primetime television, we will watch hundreds of acts of violence. And we're okay with that. But for some reason, the way that we equate a connection with sex is very different. And it's very uncomfortable, if you want to know the truth. And I think some of this is maybe 
built deeply into our psyche as Americans for a couple of reasons. Number one, and this is one of the assertions that this particular psychologist makes, it's that we are a relatively young culture. Some of you come from, from cultures with history. We're Americans. We don't have much history, like a couple hundred years. If something doesn't become a parking lot in 50 years, we're like, oh, it's an old building. It's 50 years old. Like, oh, that's amazing, you know. One of my favorite um, comedians, Eddie Izzard, always starts his shows with, with, I'm from Europe, where the history comes from, because there is some. We're a relatively young culture, and so we're still working through this, and we're relatively adolescent in the way that we deal with relationships, and I think we see that often throughout, throughout our experiences. But I think one of the other reasons is this. We, like all people, really desire relationships. We want them so badly. We want them so badly that we are too often willing to substitute proximity with intimacy. I think Crosby, Stills, and Nash said it in their song, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Which may be a catchy pop song, but may not be so good when it comes to the way that we deal with our relationships? You see, we all desire relationships, deep, fulfilling, and safe relationships. And if we could use another term for deep, fulfilling, and safe, we would use that word intimacy. And there's this text that speaks of a relationship with God that I thought we'd break open this morning a little bit and talk about as we try to build these intimate relationships. Because I don't care who you are, you want to feel like you're close to people, but you want to feel that in a healthy way. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22 says this, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there's three things within this text that I think we can open up and take a real consistent and real deep look into. The first one is that phrase, draw near. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. When you draw near to something, that's not an unintentional bumping into. That's proximity, and that's too close proximity. And too often, our relationships look just like that. And when you happen to bump into things, you happen to get bruises and you happen to get hurt. But when you draw near to something, you both come together. A drawing near says that it's God coming close to us and us coming close to him. It is a mutual drawing near, a coming together of people. And that is the first thing that you need to have intimacy in your relationships, an intentional walk towards one another. Now, I don't know, some of you may be in these long-term relationships. I've been married for 16 years, and I can tell you the first time I saw my wife, and it scared me half to death, because I saw her and I thought, she's gorgeous. I'm a monster. <laughs> I'm not sure I thought that exactly, but I, I know I had like a, oh, oh, I really want to talk to that girl. And you've seen it, you've seen it. You can see it around campus. When somebody wants to talk to somebody and the other person doesn't really want them to talk to it, it's like one person walking, it's like those two opposite ends of a magnet and the other person kind of just go and, <laughs> and there's this weird like, oh, hey, I'm, it's awkward and awesome. It's so much fun to watch. 
I used to work, I used to work at, a, at Loma Linda Academy, and my window looked out over the quad, and you could see it when people would ask people to, to banquets. It was beautiful. <laughs> oh, so awkward. <laughs> Freshman would walk up to a senior with flowers. You could see her shaking her head from like 30 feet away. <laughs> and you're like, dude, don't do it, don't do it. Oh, no, oh. And I would laugh and laugh. <laughs> we felt bad. The ones I was always impressed with were the ones who were like, no. <laughs> those guys, those were the impressive ones. <laughs> but it's a mutual coming together. It's this drawing near one another. And you can see it because if you've ever had those awkward moments when you see somebody, but you do want to talk to them, and you can kind of tell they want to talk to you too, and, it's, and so you kind of position yourself. Let's say you're at someone's house, and there's a vespers going on, you know, and we're all talking about Jesus and looking at each other. Um, and somehow, all of a sudden, you're singing songs next to each other and swaying. That's as close as we have in us get to dancing. And then when they say, now get together with two people and pray, you're like, <laughs> you shouldn't use prayer as a dating tool. It's inappropriate. <laughs> but when two people want to talk to each other and they finally get to talk to each other, and you know how it is. It's good when you come together and you're both mutually responsible for the, for the conversation. And then it grows and it grows. And it's beautiful. But too often, we're willing to, to kind of jump over that step. We're, we're, we're just ready to be near rather than to draw near. And every time in Scripture when we see that word drawing near, it's a purposeful and intentional movement. It's not a passive waiting, and it's certainly not a passive-aggressive manipulation of someone else. It is a purposeful and intentional movement towards one another. Think of this. Think of when you're approaching a wild animal, like a gazelle, a kangaroo, or an elephant, or a bear, which most of you will do in your lives at some point. And I'm not saying that's exactly what dating is like, but the approach to a wild animal is both careful and bold. If you ambush it or jump in at the last minute, it will bolt or charge. And the best approach is open-handed, showing the animal you have nothing to hide, intentional and deliberate. Now, this is not something I've ever done, because wild animals are wild. <laughs> but it seems to me that that's your best approach. And I understand this metaphor will only go so far. But... When I um, spent time in Israel as I was growing up, we would always go through Hezekiah's Tunnel, and forgive me if you heard this illustration before, but we'd always go through Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was built during the siege of Hezekiah, and, um, and they started from two different ends, literally chipping away at bedrock to create a water channel. And as they did it, they started from one end outside the city and one end inside the city, and they came together. And what's interesting is they, you know, no modern technology, obviously, so they just as they got closer, they began to hear the other people picking on the other side of the rock. And then as you get towards the center of this thing, you see the jog of how it takes them till they finally broke through and came together. And that jog makes the tunnel a lot of fun because it's completely dark. And if the water gets too full in certain places, you actually have to swim through certain places of the tunnel, which is frightening and people die. Um, I didn't, but... But that time, you can tell how they were jockeying. They were coming together, and they finally connected. That's an intentional drawing near. And we need to have this intentional drawing near, or else we're just running into each other. The second thing I think we see from this text 
if you remember, where it says for us to, um, where it says that we need to draw near. The second thing is that you draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith. There has to be something called trust, and trust is something that you cannot microwave. To trust someone takes a great deal of time, doesn't it? And we know how quickly we break trust. But to break trust, to be assured of someone's love for you, to be assured of someone's interest in you even, there has to be a great deal of communication and openness. When it says here in Hebrews that we come with him in the assurance of faith, we know that we're not going to get hurt. Now, the culture code in America for sex is violence. So what do you think happens when you insert that too quickly into a relationship where you're trying to build trust? It's a concern, perhaps. See, building trust is something that Hollywood has taught us is really good at doing. If you've ever seen a horror film or a suspenseful film, what they do is they continually build trust with you and then break it and build trust and break it. And it happens because you watch people and they'll go, oh, yeah. Ah! And for some reason, we love that. It builds trust and we trust. And then we scream and our trust is broken and our heart is broken. And that's how some of us deal with our relationships. We trust too easily and our heart gets broken. And, we're, and then we're quickly looking for the next thing to trust into. Well, there's only a few things that give us real assurance. And the first thing you have to have is a real assurance of who you are in the midst of the God of the universe. And when you find out who you are within the midst of the God of the universe, you know who and where your trust is laid. And so those other breaking of trust are not as deeply broken. And we don't fall so far. For some of us, the history of our relationship is to move in too close, no intimacy, too much proximity, and violence is done to your ability to trust. And that is hard. And Hebrews 10, at the end, also speaks to us making things right, becoming clean, talks about us being sprinkled clean, full of our bodies being sprinkled clean. That's a metaphor for us becoming at one with one another. The word we use in scripture is atonement, at one We become right. And the way that we become right with people is that we spend time talking to them and telling them everything that we are. And that, if that happens too quickly, that trust can be broken and we can be devastated and so these things, these steps, these drawing near, the assurance and trusting of one another, and then the sharing and becoming right with one another, that takes time, and it takes a process. And we are too often living in a microwavable world where things become disposable. And when we do that, we go from one broken relationship to another broken relationship. Because we're so interested in being with someone that we're okay with proximity versus what we really need, which is intimacy. You can build your relationships however you want to. That's up to you. No one can tell you how to do that. All we can do is point to guidelines, and Scripture gives us guidelines of what it means to be in right kinds of relationships. And being Christians, we go to the New Testament because it gives us a model for what Jesus did for us. Jesus drew near to us, and we could trust him and be assured in him. And through that trusting, we become cleansed because he knows everything that we are. And if that is the way we approach our relationships with one another, perhaps we wouldn't fall so hard, so fast, so often. 
And perhaps we could grow communities of healthy relationships rather than fractured individuals with broken relationships, which is what we see too often when we sit down for pastoral counseling or when we sit down to grieve with people because of them giving too much too quickly. Never accept a substitute for intimacy because when you do, you'll ultimately be let down. And that's a hard way to go through life. And God has something more for you, something better for you, something deeper for you, and something that he wants you to experience. The joy of the kingdom of God is being right. Right with God, right with one another, with nothing to hide. Adam and Eve in the garden were naked and they were unashamed. And there was a whole process that Adam went through until Eve was given to him, knowing what God wanted for him and given to him. And then they together were naked and unashamed. And that, metaphorically, is where we need to be with the relationships that we have. When sin enters, when we take proximity above intimacy, then we become like Adam and Eve after the fall, which says they were naked, not even unashamed, but afraid of one another. So, as you go throughout your relationships, I hope that you can think on these things. And maybe take some time, rather than rushing so forward, to draw near, be assured, and to be made right. Thank you guys for listening today. I appreciate it.